Welcome to Building the Bridge, connecting parents and educators around online learning. I'm your host, Dr. Wendy Oliver, Chief Learning Officer for Edison Learning. Each week, this podcast will present targeted, practical strategies for both teachers and parents to ensure we are all on the same page in successfully navigating the digital education world together. Thanks for joining me on this journey. And now, please enjoy today's episode. Thanks for tuning in to part two of our special crossover conversation with Jethro Jones and Frederick Lane, co-hosts of Cybertraps podcast. In part one, we discussed topics including the ethical issues relevant to remote learning and ensuring high standards in a fragmented environment. And we left off in the middle of a discussion about critical thinking and student engagement. As part two begins, we continue the discussion about engagement and how parents and educators are both gaining a new perspective through online learning. Another point that I'll make, and this is something that I've learned through multiple conversations, is because of the immediate transition online, a lot of parents looked to the, all the quote-unquote free resources, which, as you all know, free is never free. Data is our currency. But, but parents were looking at those free resources online in order to help engage or enroll further, further develop their children to make sure that they weren't missing out. That has had a significant impact on expectations of parents for the education system and for teachers as well, in that now families are expecting commercial grade quality. And in reality, I have to reflect and think as a teacher, I wasn't trained to provide commercial grade resources to students. And I wasn't trained necessarily in how to teach children to think critically and be prepared for this economy. There has to be a period of grace while we allow our educators to transition and shift gears. That's a lovely phrase, a period of grace, Wendy, because it it seems to me to be the kind of thing that we also need to extend to parents, if you will, in terms of their transition into better guiding their children in terms of the use of technology. The flip side, the challenge to that is that there are significant risks associated with the use of technology and you you don't want to have a child who makes one of those mistakes. Hopefully we can we can encourage parents to keep that period of grace as short as possible. But I will say that I was pleased to hear you reference artificial intelligence or AI because that's really in the wheelhouse of the research that I do, the impact of technology on society. And I think your observation about how we train our teachers is particularly apt because only now, I think, are we beginning to change the focus for teachers from obviously knowing their subject matter area and being prepared to present that to students to knowing their subject matter area, but then getting students to think critically about it, which is a different mission. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. You know, when I reflect back on my time in the education system, which we won't discuss how long ago that was, the teachers that knew the most were always the ones that everybody looked up to, or they were the hardest teachers. And in reality, that has shifted drastically. But there is going to have to be an opportunity for training those teachers and for helping them to transition in such a way that they can meet expectations. 
What I find in education is that change is very slow. Well, change was not slow with the pandemic. Everyone was thrown into it, as we've already said. And so that, because that expectation was changed overnight, I truly believe that is what is going to propel and drive our education system to change. And in addition to that, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Paula Love on building the bridge. And she is a funding expert. To listen to her talk about all the different funding opportunities that have come as a result of the pandemic, it is amazing to me that all of these dollars are out there for schools to, to change and to deal with this current situation. And it is the first time, as someone who managed a federal grant years ago, it's the first time that I have ever seen funding with so few strings attached for school districts. And that I'm so hopeful will be used to change what we see as our public education today. The idea of funding is a real challenge for schools because there's a lot of money in education, but every single school feels like they don't have enough money to do what they need to. And it's, I believe, because of what you're talking about with those strings attached. And that's really challenging for schools to figure out how to use that little money they have for the different things that they know they need to do. I think some of the things that that definitely schools should be spending their money on are teaching about ethics in technology spaces, understanding how to use those appropriately, and then thinking really hard about the kind of technology that we buy and whether or not that is furthering our mission and, and what we want to have happen with our students. So if you're buying a piece of software that is teaching kids that it's okay to you know, have surveillance, for example, if you're buying software that says that treats kids as criminals who just haven't been caught yet, then you're going down a wrong path and you need to make a better decision about that. If you're so worried about cheating or about kids not doing what they should be doing, then you're, you're saying something with that purchase. And I think it's really vital to make those decisions in a way that is very ethical and honors people as individuals and doesn't punish them for being human beings. Well, and to your point around the types of software that are being purchased to minimize cheating, in reality, to, you know, to go back to what we were said a few minutes ago, if the curriculum that is being delivered is truly engaging and if the assessments are authentic, and we're doing real-world problems and truly preparing these kids for what they're going to experience, then cheating shouldn't, that is not just an optimistic outlook, but cheating shouldn't happen if the students are truly engaged. And in reality, if the assignments that they have are project-based learning and authentic assessments, then in those situations, they can't cheat. Well, Wendy, if I can toss in one other concept that I think is important, when schools look at the software that they implement, and this ties in with what Jethro is saying, you're really, in a sense, training students for the kind of world you expect them to grow up in. And and if, as Jethro said, if we're treating them as kind of minority report candidates, people who just haven't been caught yet, then that's going to really shape how they view the world. Some time ago when I did Cyber Traps for the Young, I was fairly clear on the fact that I don't think that uh, hidden surveillance software, even on your child's computer, is a good idea because it teaches them 
that they are subject to hidden surveillance. And I don't think that is a positive social good. I would have to agree with that. One of the things that I recommend to parents to help mitigate situations and to prepare their students and their children is having open and honest dialogue, being very honest about what is cyberbullying. Why do we want to not have our iPad in, our, in your bedroom at night? It's just not a good idea, but why, right? It's not just that we monitor it and shut the device off. It's a conversation because this is the world in which these children live and they need to be made aware of the consequences of some of the decisions and choices that they could potentially make. Well, and closely related to that is the ability to convey your family values to the children in those conversations so that you're having a real dialogue about what your expectations are. And I would argue, you give the children a chance to have some feedback on how they want devices used within the family. One of the things that you know I, I point out to people with some frequency is that there is good statistical evidence that the thing that bothers kids most is their parents being distracted by devices. At my home, we have a no phone zone policy at the dinner table, uh, and that's for everyone, right? Not just children. That's for the adults as well. Yeah, I have a great story that I'll that will be my last comment here. I was with uh, a friend, and he was using his phone while he was talking, and his daughter came up and wanted his attention, and he kept ignoring her. And she finally waved her hand in front of the screen to get his attention, and one that made him frustrated and mad that she did that but two it proved that she was very aware that he was ignoring her and paying attention to his phone and it was just fascinating to watch that uh, exchange play out and really tragic at the same time because you could see the the hurt and frustration in both of their eyes with how that device was coming between them very literally yeah absolutely i think that's one thing that we all grapple with, and especially in a pandemic when we're stuck at home, it is very easy to pay more attention to the device. But another thing that I have found is over the last year, so many families have had the opportunity to create habits of quality time together. And that quality time, like you said, Fred, about how it helps to really create and install those family values and those, the communication increases. While we've talked about a lot of things in the pandemic that could potentially be negative, such as cybersecurity increase, increased risks, there are so many benefits that have come out of this, I think, for the future of education and also for families. Yeah. Any final comments, Fred, before we wrap this great interview up? No, I think this has been really, really useful. It's it's just such a uh, such a challenging time, and I really appreciate your thoughts on this stuff, Wendy, because you know this is something with which we will be grappling, I think, for years to come. Well, thank you both so much for having me today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I know that we could have probably talked a lot longer, <laughs> but we'll be considerate to listeners. Thank you very much, Wendy. We appreciate having you on. Alrighty, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. 
Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, Fred is at Cybertraps, and Wendy is at Oliver underscore DR for Dr. Oliver. Thank you for joining us for our two-episode mini-series with Jethro Jones and Frederick Lane. I hope you got some good insights on privacy, safety, and digital education. If you're interested in hearing more from Jethro and Frederick, you can look up their podcast at cybertraps.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you aren't already subscribed to Building the Bridge, make sure to sign up to receive next week's episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building the Bridge. I hope today's insights and strategies will prove valuable as you support great online learning this week. Be sure to visit edisonlearning.com for many more resources to support high quality 21st century learning, including a comprehensive suite of more than 150 online courses for grades six through 12 and much, much more. Join me again next week for more tips to connect parents and educators around best practices for online learning.